Hey, hey, hey. Good morning, everybody. Hey, critics. Welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions, uh, this time based on what you are putting in the chat box. And as always, let's make sure we're all good in the hood here on sound and everything. Yeah, it looks like we're good. All right. Yes. Excellent. So, uh, happy Sunday morning to you guys. I am coming here. I'm coming at you from the uh, wonderfully warm uh, weather in Denver, Colorado today. It is a beautiful sunny day. Very happy about that. We had a couple days of rain, and that was no longer that was no fun. I see all the usual critics and suspects in the chat, and I am so happy you guys are joining us. Um, all right, let's switch over to our uh, chat screen there. Yes, good. And uh, yeah, what a nice time for a Sunday stream. Exactly. Excellent. Uh, okay, a couple points to uh, start off with as you guys uh, start throwing your questions into the chat. Um, obviously, super chats go to the top. If I can, uh, if I can get to those right away, I will. Um, but rest assured, we will not end the show with any super chats left unanswered. And uh, I wanted to put a plug in for the show we did on Friday, the Critical Conversation show. I was very happy with that show, and I really want a lot of people to see it. Um, there's some ideas I've been putting together, boxing around lately that I shared on Friday regarding sort of my uh, developing ideas or th even theory, you could say, about human behavior and specifically about why we fall into these extremist headspaces, why people join cults, why they stay in cults, why would somebody do that? We have talked about logical fallacies like sunk cost fallacy and, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound and all of that. And true enough, all of these things are real, but I don't think they are strong enough motivators to keep people in an abusive group for decades. I can speak from personal experience. And so I'm putting together this kind of idea, this sort of threefold, three-dimensional idea about um, about critical thinking or facts or reasons and, and you know, and, and, and fact-based reasoning or using our frontal lobes. But I've also got emotional needs in the mix as a much more important component of why we do what we do. And I've added on top of that this third dimension of morality or morals and what's right and wrong, good and bad from our point of view, from our estimation. Everybody's different. Everybody's got their own morals. Moral foundations, And I think these three things come together in very significant and important ways to drive us to do what we do and believe what we believe and think what we think. All of this stuff comes out of these three things as far as I can tell. And I'm having a lot of fun thinking about and talking about that. And I started introducing that on Friday. So I hope you guys will check that show out. And then yesterday, I dropped a podcast with Casey from the Cult Vault. And she and I spoke for a couple hours about online gurus and the subject of Liana Shanti. Uh, one of many of these gurus, you know, we've had Stefan Molyneux years ago, we've had uh, Teal Swan, we've now got Leanna Shanty, and, and a host of other people who are taking advantage of others in a really predatory and disgusting way by, through mixes of new age, 
mysticism and spirituality and um, and identity psychology and lots of things, really everything kind of thrown into the mix. If you took if you took all of New Age mysticism and spirituality and the occult, uh, the, the you know, and the secret, uh, you know, if you put it out there into the universe, it'll come back to you tenfold and prosperity gospel and all of this stuff, which all kind of goes back to this wonderful woman in history named Madame Blavatsky. And, uh, and she was sort of the nexus or crossroads in the late 1800s and early 1900s of of all of this stuff, and from her work comes everything we've seen in the 19th and 20th centuries on uh, on this stuff. Uh, it's just, oh, it's mind-boggling what people will believe. And we might talk about why they believe what they believe, but, you know, kind of talking about the ridiculousness of it and also the pre- predatory nature of it, which is kind of my wheelhouse. That's kind of where I live on this is like, hey, guys, this is not okay. You know, people can believe whatever they want. And, and you can point and, and laugh at people's beliefs, and fair enough, right? Anybody's ideas are up for inspection, but they have the right to believe whatever they want. But when you're preying on people, when you're taking their money and busting up their families and destroying their lives because of your nonsensical dogma or belief system, we have to call that into question. We got to do something about that. That's not okay. And that's what these uh, Leanna Shanties of the, and Teal Swans of the world are about. And they can get into pretty dark places, and they can take people to pretty dark places. So anyway, we had, a, we had a good time talking about that and breaking it all down in some detail. So I hope you guys will check out that podcast that I dropped yesterday. Okay, and finally, um, the other thing I wanted to uh, throw out here, and again, just start throwing your questions into the chat here, is, uh, oh, yes, Joe, I will mention this, is um, channel memberships. I don't know if you all know, some people have signed on as members of this channel on YouTube. It's a small monthly uh, donation, basically, that you're making to the cause here for me to do my work. And it's a fun way for you to contribute to the channel and the show. And uh, you get some emojis and some fun things that show up in the chats and stuff like that. Little things, you know, but it's just kind of fun. So that's a way of supporting the show. And then, um, uh, oh, thank you, Leslie, for saying this. Friday's show was outstanding. I, I agree. Uh, okay, let's go to some questions coming in. Now, Joe asks, uh, hey, Chris, great to catch you live. Thanks for the interview. Um, can you tell us more about your consulting rates? Talking about my experiences that talking about my experiences inspired my show. Yeah. Okay. So I do consulting. I am a professional consultant. I have taken my degree in the psychology of coercive control and the 10 years of research and knowledge and experience and, and all of that and thought I can help people. And sure enough, I have. I've actually been able to help people with, uh, education, advice, some guidance and direction, I do not do therapy. I am not a licensed therapist. I, that is not what I do. And despite my, you know, some of my detractors out there who claim that's what I'm saying, I have taken great pains to say that's not what I'm doing. 
Um, so screw them, <laughs> but I will consult and I can help with, um, you know, all the way up to intervention level stuff, but really more personal one-on-one is what I'm most interested and focused on doing, where if you are somebody who has come out of a traumatic or coercive situation, whether it be a relationship or whether it be a culty situation or anything like that, I can help. And if you have family or friends or somebody you know that you care about who's caught up in a coercive situation, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to talk to them, you don't know what to say that's not going to turn them off or you've already said too much and now they're pissed at you or something like that, maybe we can sort it out. Maybe we can figure things out. I work on the long term. I don't work on one hit wonders and, you know, here's your gotcha question and they're going to, their whole lives are going to change because you threw this fact at them. We all know that ain't how it works. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're going to have to work on the person in order to be able to get them out of these coercive situations. And, uh, and that's the consulting that I do on that. I charge $100 an hour for my time, which, by the way, is incredibly cheap in this space, in what we do and, and what I'm doing. So if you're interested in that or need, have need uh, of that, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can email me uh, through, either through askchrisshelton at gmail.com would be the fastest way to reach me, and, uh, and we can talk. Okay, and I've got intake forms and stuff I do. I mean, it's a little bit of a process. It's not just a quick phone call. I actually do want to help. And the way that I help is to get information from you, find out what the situation is, you know, what the relationship is, what's going on with the person. And then we can kind of sort of sess out how we're going to deal with that. So that is uh, that's my my consultation service. So thank you very much, Joe, for giving me an opportunity to plug that. I don't, I don't think I talk about it enough. Um, okay, yes, excellent. Uh, yeah, Casey with a Y. It's K-E-C-E-Y, I believe, is how you spell her name. Um, okay, so let's start uh, picking up some of the questions coming in here. Excuse me. Um, okay, so Nerman asked a question. I'm not sure how serious this question is, but I'll, I'll pick it up. What makes Sea Oregon Clearwater legal? Well, there's nothing illegal about having a group or a fraternal order, as they would uh, like to describe themselves, because there is no real legal uh, existence to the Sea Org. It's not a corporation or, an, or a legally recognized entity. It's simply this agreed-upon group of people who sign up uh, with a symbolic billion-year contract of commitment to the goals of Scientology and forwarding the aims of Scientology. That's, there's nothing legal or illegal about that. It's simply, you know, that that's what it is what it is. Um, the corporations, the legality of Scientology in Clearwater and otherwise has to do with corporate law. They are corporations. And uh, every single Church of Scientology entity is a separate corporate structure. Uh, and it's all part of a hierarchy uh, of organizations or structures, uh, a, a labyrinth, if you will, because there's hundreds of them, uh, not just the city-level churches who exist as corporate entities, but then there are the management units, which are themselves corporations. Uh, the, the Church of Scientology in Clearwater, Florida, the flag service organization, is a corporate organization. And the individuals who work for the Sea Org there sign contracts, not just the billion-year contracts. That's not a legally binding document. Nobody cares about that. 
The legally binding document is the religious volunteer status that you put yourself under to work for the Sea Org. And, you, so, and that's the staff contract. The same thing that, that, the, that the staff sign at the city-level churches, like here in Denver, New York, you know, Milano, wherever, Keokuk, those churches have volunteers, and they have legally recognized volunteers, religious volunteers, who sign over certain rights, and uh, such as the right to uh, take the church to court, right? They agree to religious arbitration, and we all know how that goes. Uh, <clears throat> and they, Sea uh, Org, sign the same contracts for five years at a shot, and every five years they re-up. And one of the functions of the Office of Special Affairs in their legal area is to go around and make sure they keep track of where everybody is at on their contracts because everybody needs to be under contract in the Sea Org as well as on staff. And that's the only real legal um, form or representation of, of what goes on there, okay? So I don't know if that clarifies anything, but that's kind of the situation with that. And that's, I, you know, I don't know. That's kind of how they are uh, legal, if that makes sense. All right. Um, let's carry on here. Uh, great, great, great. Yeah. Coercion online. Ugh, nasty stuff. Um, okay. Let's keep going down. <laughs> Vernon asks, what happens if a Sea Org is caught taking psychiatric medication? Uh, they are made to stop. <laughs> That's what happens. Um, it, you know, it mostly would be an accident. I mean, psychotropics are often used for other purposes beyond their psychotropic or psychiatric applications. Uh, sometimes they are used for certain illness or for certain other conditions. And so they can be prescribed to somebody and then they find out, and I saw this happen a couple times, they find out, oh my God, this is a psych med, <gasps> right? Oh my God, you're on psych meds. Ah! And, they, and they freak out and everybody freaks out and loses their collective minds and they get the person off. And uh, they are a lot, when I left, I don't know how it is now, but when I was in, in the 1980s and 90s, it was cold turkey, baby. It was get the hell off of that thing right now. We don't care. It would be better to get you off immediately than to let you go on destroying your mind with these psychotropics, with these psych meds. Then they kind of learn the hard way. That's not necessarily true. You can have devastating consequences to somebody if you just cold turkey them off of, uh, you know, Ritalin or, uh, you know, the host of other psychotropics, which, whose names, uh, you know, Ambien. I mean, you know, I don't know. There's all these things. There's so many of them. And it's not necessarily in their best interest to, uh, to just take them off cold turkey. And so they would, you know, start a schedule of, of, of weaning them off. Uh, but they will absolutely, positively, without any question whatsoever, get you off those drugs right away. Uh, they have absolutely no interest in, uh, in Scientologists taking psychiatric medications uh, for any reason, period. End of story. So... Um, so that's kind of what would happen there. As far as, um, it, you know, and, and maybe there's an implication here, Vernon, and uh, being caught that they were doing it on purpose, and that would be pretty impossible. Sea uh, Org members are, are, let's remember that the Sea Org are the fanatics 
of Scientology. They are, they are in a fanatical headspace. And I use that word advisedly. I mean, both having been there and observing the behavior all the way up to now, you know, you're observing people who are well beyond the ability to think critically about what they're involved in. And they are all in. Uh, you know, billion-year contract. They take that stuff seriously. I call it a symbolic um, contract of commitment, but they don't really think about it that way. Maybe I shouldn't use that word, but I just want people to understand it's it's not a legally binding contract, and nobody imagines that it is. But they do imagine that it's real, that a billion years is a billion years, and they're they're down for it. And that kind of headspace is... You know, that's a that's a that's kind of a a little bit apart from everybody else in terms of the reasoning power of somebody doing something like that. So that's why I call it a fanatical, you know, headspace. So um, so they're not they're not going to try to take psychotropics on the sly or get away with, you know, taking or, or stepping off of the you know the 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 agreed upon ideas within the sea organ within scientology that psychiatry and psychology are absolutely evil practices they believe that thoroughly they there is nothing good to be had in psychology or psychiatry especially psychiatry you know sometimes they'll give a little bit they'll give a few inches to psychology and certain psychological principles they'll use some of the language they'll talk about trauma they'll try to incorporate some of that into the dianetics or scientology lingo or belief set you know they'll go that far but they will never give an inch on on psychiatry being something useful, constructive, or helpful to anybody ever under any circumstances. So, um, yeah, so that's that's what I can say about that. Okay, um, Exion, let's see here. Okay, Exion, do you think that the number of ex-Scientologists already has or will soon outnumber the active Scientologists? Oh, I think we passed that a long time ago. I read something many, many years ago that I believe uh, it was based on um, the active list of people who have spoken out against Scientology. And that list is numbers in the thousands, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, somebody has been keeping that list up for years. And one of the things that came out of that or one of the thing, one of the um, uh, side pieces of information connected with that is that there have been five X Sea Org members for every Sea Org member. That's quite a ratio, you know. Uh, so when you look at that and you think right now that there are about four to five thousand Sea Org members in the world at large right now, and it might actually be less than that. It was five thousand around the time I left. That was about that was the number we were kind of working with. About 5,000 Sea Org, about 5,000 staff members, and the rest were public Scientologists. And those numbers, I feel pretty confident that 10 years ago, those were accurate. Uh, we've only seen decline since then. Uh, the Sea Org is absolutely smaller than it used to be, absolutely. 
uh, staff are absolutely smaller numbers than they used to be. And we generally gauge that the number of public active Scientologists has been declining uh, similarly. So these are not unreasonable assumptions. They are assumptions. We don't have transparency with the numbers. The church does not post their numbers. But census information out of Australia, Canada, the UK, United States has told us declining membership. So when you look at kind of that whole pot and you kind of go, okay, what's the kind of, what's the situation here? You're looking absolutely at the fact that the number of ex-Scientologists is far exceeds the number of active Scientologists. I have more YouTube subscribers than there are active Scientologists. That's, that's, you know, on my one channel. So, yeah. So we're, we're talking about a, a small group of people at this point, uh, you know, 20, 25, you know, maybe if we're, if we're really being generous, 35,000 Scientologists in the world at large these days, maybe, you know, that to me, that seems generous. Okay. So there we go with that. Um, Okay, Xcyan, what does Scientology charge for an hour of counseling? It depends on the organization um, because there's a graduated scale, and I don't have the latest price lists, but if I remember right, it's around $2,500, $3,000 for an intensive of auditing, which is 12 and a half hours of auditing. That's a block. That's how they sell it. They don't sell it by the hour. Um, they, I think they sell introductory auditing, the lowest level kind of auditing. I think that's sold by the hour. And I think you could get like a Dianetics session. The last time I knew numbers on this, I think a Dianetics session was 200 or 250 per hour for a professional auditor to audit you. Um, was it per hour? Maybe it might have been by five-hour blocks or something. It's a, it's a little, it, it changes a lot. So it's a little hard for me to nail, to remember it. Uh, specifically, but but there was introductory auditing you could buy by like five hour blocks, and then there's the professional level auditing where you're gonna you know the full rate uh, or not full rate but the full professional Hubbard Guidance Center auditing the auditing that gets done in Division Four, not Division Six. That's the intro stuff. Division Four is where you're doing your mainline grade chart auditing, and that's going to be at least twenty five hundred three thousand dollars per intensive. There's a sliding scale of auditing that they sell. So you can buy five intensives and get a cut rate on those intensives. I think by the time you get up to buying 10 intensives at a shot, one of those intensives is basically free uh, is kind of how that works. Um, so that's interesting. Let me, um, let me just do something really fast because I see that my power is not plugged in right here and I kind of want that. Silly me. Always got to make sure all the plugs are plugged in, Chris. All right. So, um, so there we go on the auditing. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's about how it works. Now, if you go to FLAG and you pay for the highest level auditing you can get, which are the L rundowns, L10, 11, and 12, you're going to be paying what are called class 12 rates, where you're paying for the highest trained auditors you can get anywhere in the universe. And those class 12s 
that's about $10,000 per 12 and a half hour block of auditing. Last time I knew. That's expensive auditing. That is the highest you can get. So it can so it so it ranges in there, you see. The 2500 to 3000 was at the city level churches. When you go to the next higher class of organization, the Sea Org organizations, the ASHOs, um, it's a 10% hike. And when, when you go to an AO, an advanced organization, it's another 10% hike. And then you go to FLAG and there's another bump, right? So, so that's the bump up in rates as you go up. Same kind of auditing. You can, you can go to FLAG and get the same kind of auditing you could get at a class five city level church and be charged, you know, 10, 20, 30% more because the quality is so much better, see? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a Hubbardism. He created that whole system uh, decades ago. So that's kind of how that works. All right. Um, oh, yeah, Raymond. Okay, Raymond says, asks here, Chris, can you tell something about the abortion rights in Colorado? Is it permitted unlike several other uh, several conservative states? Yeah, I believe our governor actually just signed some things into law. It's always been, um, or it's been legal here as long as I've been here. Um, and that's something I stand for and stand with, is I, I am uh, pro-rights in terms of that, right? And uh, But yeah, that's that's law here. I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. We have, uh, we're a pretty blue, bluish state here in Colorado, and we believe that it is uh, incumbent that we protect the rights of the mothers and the individuals involved uh, with that so that they can make their choices free and clear of government interference. Um, that's just not something that's, I feel, appropriate for the government to be you know, stepping into. I recognize that is an incredibly controversial position, and I get it. You know, I really do. I've, I've had long discussions with people on the other side of the ideological fence on that. I really wish it wasn't politicized. It didn't used to be. Uh, it was made, you know, into a political issue in the 1980s for reasons that not a lot of people understand uh, that were kind of nefarious and a little gross and have nothing to do with abortion, actually. So that's its own little thing to talk about, which we won't do today. But um, but just to answer your question, Raymond, yeah, we are we do have abortion rights here in Colorado. All right. Um, okay, Vernon. Here's an interesting question: Was Leah Remini friends with Danny Masterson? Was she aware of his demeanor with women? Uh, no, and no. As far as I understand, uh, Leah was not ever close personal friends with Danny. Now, I can't. You know, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit for Leah here. I don't know for sure, um, but I'm positive. I am a thousand percent positive, and this is a hill I would die on, that Leah had absolutely no idea what Danny Masterson was up to when it came to his behavior towards uh, and with women. Uh, there's, there's no way Leah would have ever put up with a millisecond of that. She's just not that person. Uh, if there is one thing you can say about Leah is, is she presents exactly how she is. And you know, talking, you know, seeing her talk, seeing her attitude, seeing how she is, uh, and seeing her active and visible support of Danny Masterson's alleged victims, um, you know, showing up at, at the pretrial uh, stuff, even at, within the last month, 
uh, in support of the victims, that she is very much on their side, always has been. And she is the kind of woman who would not put up with Danny Masterson's bullshit for a microsecond, in or out of Scientology. Uh, just period, right? Remember, she's the one who was asking, where's Shelly? And she's the one who bucked that system. She's not somebody who just, you know, conforms easily. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's at least my thinking on, uh, on her and Danny Masterson. Okay. Let's see, hear me wet my whistle here. Uh, let's see here. Moving right along. I have no comment on that. Um, Colonel Brock, Chris, what year did the billionaire contract start? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I... I believe it was 1968 when the, you know, the Sea Org officially started um, as the Sea Project back in 1967, became the Sea Org or the Sea Organization in 1968. And um, as far as I know, the billion-year contract started around that time. Uh, you know, people came on and they were hardcore Scientologists. Originally, it was just supposed to be OTs or very high-level Scientologists, clears and OTs who were only being signed up. And then they kind of opened the ranks to let's get everybody in here. And and they had uh, they had various evolutions of of recruitment uh, over the years. But that was yeah, I think it was I think it was '68 that that started. Okay, um, yeah, exactly, building your contract. Yes, Benson's getting all kinds of love today. Thank you, Angel Hugger. Um, oh, Colonel Brock, Chris, did you ever see any alcohol drinking in the Sea Org go out or otherwise? Hell yes, absolutely. Oh, we drank like sailors. <laughs> um, <coughs> now, uh, to clarify when that happens, uh, there was a bosun's party every year around Christmas time where they bust out the beer. They, they have a beer and cheese party around Christmas time. Uh, in December, there's a beer and cheese, and there is a bosun's party. And the bosun's party is where the hard liquor comes out, and people get drunk off their asses. It's a little, um, it's a little reminiscent of the purge. <laughs> You know, everybody kind of agrees to forget about what happened last night as long as it's not like, you know, a gross violation of the rules. They don't allow sexual activity or any kind of promiscuity or hanky-panky, but they definitely engage in drunken revelry in the Sea Org and have from the very beginning. Um, the bosun's party is an old tradition in the Sea Org uh, that they used to do back on the boat. And they would open up the locker, and here we go, right? Now it comes the alcohol. Um, so that's a that's an old uh, that's an old thing, yeah. So that's that's been allowed uh, for many many years. What they will not allow is to, for you to be so hungover the next day you can't show up to your job. They're not down with that at all, right? If you're going to play, you're going to pay, and uh, and so you better be willing to pay the piper on that and show up and get your work done. Um, but that's, yeah, 
that's that's a thing in the Sea Org. Absolutely, they don't have a problem with drunken revelry uh, there. Um, as long as it's contained and as long as it's not habitual, right? They don't encourage alcoholism, obviously. That, that would be kind of counter to their whole, um, you know, beingness, <laughs> you could say, as, uh, as Sea Org members. Okay. So there we go with that. Uh, X Cyan. All right, here's an interesting question. Uh, where do you see Scientology in 10 years? Where do you see yourself in that time? I see Scientology still around. I don't think it's going away in 10 years. And I see myself, you know, continuing to grow and expand my work the way that I've been doing. I, you know, I'm, what am I, uh, 53 now? So 10 years from now, I'll be 63. I don't see myself particularly retired by that point. I got no, I mean, I don't know if you guys know, but there's no you know, retirement fund for me right now. Everything I'm doing, I'm barely just kind of keeping afloat. So I, I'm going to keep going as long as I can. Uh, and if I'm still alive in 10 years, I'll still be doing this in all likelihood because this is, this is an honor and a privilege uh, to be able to do this work and, and, and be able to have a channel and, and speak publicly and, and be encouraged by, by you folks and educate the public at large and, and do the work I do. So I'm going to keep going as long as I can. I don't know where we're going to be in terms of YouTubing and, excuse me, and social media and all that in 10 years. Probably a bit of a different landscape than it is now. But I don't see YouTube folding up. You know, I mean, there's too big. It's too, there's too much here and there's too much potential to keep going. You know, YouTube isn't like Facebook or Twitter. Um, the content here is, is, is kind of, you know, in some ways it's amazing. You know, no, nobody cares about a tweet from last month. But my video work from seven, eight, five, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago is still completely valid, completely evergreen content and still very useful to people. So I intend on keeping it going and, uh, and I intend on my library of work continuing to expand and grow. That's my goal right now. I don't see myself being hired off to some academic institution or or doing some other kind of work. Maybe. I mean, you know, opportunities always present themselves. But we'll see. Uh, you know, it's would I have said 10 years ago that I'd be doing this today? No. <laughs> Not at all. So dimes definitely change. Things change. You know, we can see and grow. Uh, as far as Scientology goes, it's only going to get smaller. I mean, there's not going to be a re renaissance or resurgence in Scientology. Not, not without something massive changing uh, there. It's, to, it's too well-known. It's too toxic. It's too destructive. And the destruction that I talked about from the very first video that I put up, the destruction that is built into it, the self-destruction, that hasn't changed. Not one word of that would I change because I, I nailed it. I was absolutely right. Self-destruction is in its DNA. It can't help itself. The membership of Scientology, the leadership of Scientology has certain problems they have to solve in order for Scientology to continue to exist. And they must follow a thought reform pattern. They have to engage in coercive control. They have to engage in confession culture and snitch culture and the reporting and the dirty tricks and the lies. They can't get away from that model and still be Scientology. It's, it's, all, in a, it's all in a mix. And that 
is really crucial to understanding Scientology and its future is it can't change. So not, it's not its basic nature. And if it does change its basic nature, if, it, if they did do some cleaning house, reformation, dumped OSA, dumped fair gaming, dumped disconnection, stopped delivering Xenu in the OT levels, if they just dropped all that and went back down to, and went down to a self-help model where they delivered the Division Six life improvement courses and some, you know, some light grade auditing, it wouldn't be Scientology anymore. It'd be something else, you know, and we'd have to kind of reevaluate at that point what it is and what it's trying to accomplish because that would be a very, very different picture from what it's doing and trying to accomplish now. Right now, it's a compliance culture, high control group that enriches one person and the guy at the top. And that's all it's designed to do. So that's why it's eventually gonna go over a cliff because that it's not a sustainable operation. It doesn't have viability that can keep itself going. Right now, it's just operating on inertia. That's the only thing keeping Scientology going is inertia. So, you know, so it's just going to keep declining. It, it, that's, that's my systemic analysis of the situation. So we'll see. We'll see how, you know, we'll see how right I am. And like I said, things can change. They can always change. And if they do, we'll reevaluate. Uh, so there you go. All right. Cool question. Um, yeah. Psychiatry definitely could have helped Hubbard. Okay, Vernon asks, do Delphi schools teach the same as a regular school? Are all the teachers Scientologists? Um, yes and yes. Delphi, Delphi has to structure a curriculum that does meet the needs or regulations of state bodies, uh, so they do have to offer a curriculum that is well-rounded, and generally speaking, the education from Delphi schools is not bad. Um, it's not necessarily the be-all, end-all of existence, but, you know, up in Delphi, Oregon, those kids actually get a pretty interesting experience as far as travel, as far as uh, they have horses on the property. They got some interesting things going on there that one could consider could be really beneficial to an education. Uh, at the same time, they're being force-fed Scientology ethics, and that is definitely not a good thing, especially for kids. So we don't want any of that. And yes, the teachers do have to be Scientologists, or they have to at least be 100% on board with the Scientology mindset and the Scientology methodology. I don't know that it's in writing that they have to be Scientologists, but generally speaking, Delphi schools attract Scientologists to work for them. A lot of the parents of kids of, of Delphi students work at the Delphi schools uh, so that they can get a cut rate or free rate on the tuition so that their kids can afford to go to the schools because they're incredibly expensive. They are not cheap to send kids to Delphi. Those are very private, very, very uh, expensive uh, institutions. Okay. <coughs> carrying on here colonel brock chris were you recruited at a mission 
Uh, I was not. I was, uh, if my, my official recruitment happened at a Scientology organization in, in Santa Barbara, California. However, I grew up in a Scientology mission. So, you know, so I guess you could say maybe I wasn't recruited there, but I was primed there. <laughs> I, I grew up. Uh, at the Pasadena Church of Scientology, the mission there, it's now, it's now an organization, a class five org. But at the time, uh, it was a mission and my parents worked there. And all through the 70s, I was, I was go there after school, I'd hang out there or show up there on the weekends or whatever. And uh, yeah, that was kind of my experience growing up was a lot of time hanging out at the mission. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's that. Um. All right. Okay. I will. Uh, it, there's been a couple of comments about the trial starting tomorrow. This is a good enough, good a time as any to let you all know. I'm probably going to be doing a live stream tomorrow on this channel uh, in the uh, early mid afternoon with Tony. He's go, he's out there uh, in L.A. and he's going to be uh, reporting from the ground. You know, on the ground there on the trial. And so I'll be. Uh, sort of collaborating with him on uh, trial coverage. And so tomorrow you'll probably get a live stream from him uh, reporting on the first day of activity there. So um, if not live, we'll record it and then I'll post it. But uh, either way, you'll uh, hear from us tomorrow on that. I'm not going to try, by the way, on this channel. Y'all might have noticed, you know, I'm not not trying to be a, a daily... Here's your info on Scientology channel. That's not that's not my motif or my my thing. Um, but I do want to keep up on this trial to one degree or another. And um, and Tony, of course, is going to be reporting daily on it. So um, so that's where I will be drawing my information from and sharing it with you guys. Okay. Uh, moving right along here. Um, yeah, do hit that like button. All right. Oh, now we did have a super chat here. Um, let me see if I can find it. I didn't want to miss that. Anthony. Oh, okay. Interesting question, Anthony. Um, Anthony asks, uh, going clear talks about Leonard Cohen being involved in Scientology. Do you know what extent and for how long? I actually don't. I know it wasn't long and I know he wasn't deeply involved. Uh, there have been a number of celebrities over the years, who have kind of dipped their toe in the Scientology pool, have, have made mention of it even. I think the Beatles even made a mention of the, the guy on the hill or something in one of their songs referring to Hubbard at St. Hill. Um, I, don't quote me on that line. There's some line in one song that could be an allusion to L. Ron Hubbard uh, from the Beatles, but the Beatles were not involved in Scientology. I'm just saying it gets mentioned here and there in the celebrity world. But there have been people who have kind of gone in and gone right back out. And I believe Leonard Cohen was one of those. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, right, took a communications class. Brad Pitt did a purification rundown because uh, he was a uh, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend with uh, Julia Lewis, Juliet Lewis for a period of time. And, uh, and he kind of got involved. And then I think, I think he realized the same thing Elvis did, right? Those fuckers just want my money. You know, he just kind of, no, I'm, I know what this is about. I'm out of here. Uh, so we have seen some people who just had a very passing sort of uh, relationship with Scientology. And my knowledge, from my understanding, uh, Leonard Cohen was one such person. 
right? One of many. So that's, uh, that's what I can say about that. Thanks for the question, Anthony. Uh, all right. Raymond asks, if you had to do a follow-up study about cults or abusive relationships, what would it be and why? Oh, my God, Raymond. If I had to do a follow-up study about cults or abuse, I mean, there's only about 10 I'd like to do. I mean, there's so many. There's so much research to be done on the subject of cults and abusive relationships. We are, we are only really, you know, hitting the surface because so much of academia for so many decades has been about how cults are not a thing, how apostates or former members are to be ignored and how there is no such thing as mind control, thought reform, or brainwashing. All of those things are completely wrong. But that's been academia's approach to destructive cults for the most part. It's been really bad. The field is, the literature in the field is really behind, the, be, way behind on this. And we are only very recently out of the United Kingdom seeing some real steps forward on this through the subject of coercive control. And this is mostly focused on domestic violence. So we need to bring all of that domestic violence modeling over into the cult world. And this is happening through the program I did through coercive control of, you know, when we monitor or analyze gang activity, trafficking activity, cultic activity. And there are so many studies that could be done on this. But the real problem in doing it are the ethical guidelines and boundaries that we have now that we didn't used to have. And I'm not saying we should return to the days of the Stanford Prison Experiment, but it's a little hard to study coercive control if you cannot create situations of coercive control. It's difficult. So you got to go find them. And then you got to study them. And how do you study them ethically? These are, these are problems. Do you do ethnographic kind of anthropological research where you go insert yourself in it? Do you create situations? Do you only listen to testimonial or anecdotal evidence? You know, not the best. It's useful. It's all we've got for the most part. But could there be better evidence? Could there be better studies done? You bet there could. I'd love to see some um, uh, some studies done, and I and I actually wrote a research proposal when I was on my program as an ac- as an exercise. We were we had to write a research proposal, and I did it on QAnon and how would one go about studying QAnon? And I suggested uh, surveying or 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 contacting members of QAnon and somehow getting them to open up and talk, but that depends an awful lot on the savvy of the surveyor or the interviewer uh, to get them to open up. And that's not an easy task. Far easier would be to insert yourself in the culture as a QAnon supporter and study from the inside. That would be, you know, quite good work. Does anybody do it? No. Should they do it? Hell yes. Right? We should see all kinds of work on that. Um, and it would be very interesting. The only thing we really get on this is media reports and journalists and stuff who may sometimes take a stab at this kind of thing. But they're not doing academic work. They're doing journalism. <laughs> very, very different set of guidelines and circumstances there. So I would love to see that kind of research being done on um, 
Internet gurus, I think that is the next big thing in the field, so to speak, is how online gurus and cult activity occurs uh, in the digital spaces. There is a there's a wealth of information out there to be studied, not just hashing the numbers, but actually getting into the behaviors. Then there are in real life groups and there again is immersion, you know, immersive type studies where you can get in there and and rub elbows with the other membership and with the leader and find out, you know, how does this work and and how uh, is this group working and how do the how do the dynamics of this group work and what are people responding to very specifically with this group and maybe compare contrast that with excuse me. With uh, You can tell I'm still recovering from this stupid cold. You can compare and contrast that with other contexts like Scientology or like the Mormons. I'd love to see some sociological studies done on uh, Mormons. You have an entire state where, there, where there's a state government-run religion, basically, in Utah, Man, there's multi levels, multiple levels of study that could be done there. So, um, so that could be, you know, and these are just ideas I'm throwing off off the top of my head. There's, there's, uh, there's digging into the kind of research I did when I did my program of the control framework that gets built up in an auditing session. That's what I kind of focused on is not just the the commands or the the fact that you're interrogating someone with security checks, but the very framework of the session. You lock the door. They can't leave. The e-meter is the truth to, is the truth teller. You don't you don't care what the preclear says. The meter is what matters. That's doctrine over person. That's very controlling. There's a framework of control set up there. How does that compare with other frameworks of control that that the Mormons set up, that the JW set up. Oh, just a wealth of information available there if people would go study it. So that that's the kind of research I'd like to see done. Most of the literature on cults are talking heads, bumping heads with talking heads. It's people arguing with each other from their ivory towers. You know, well, I don't think there's anything like thought reform or mind control. That just doesn't happen. It's a fantasy. Okay, thank you for your opinion, but there's no research there. You know, and and Lifton went and actually did research. We could build on that research. We could build a lot on that research. So that's the kind of thing I'd like to see uh, occur there. As you might tell, I've been thinking about this a little bit uh, over, over the years. Okay, yeah, first time you see me from behind. <laughs> it's not pretty, is it? <laughs> All right, um, let's see what else we got here. Okay, Colonel Brock asks, what's the org situation in Colorado? <coughs> there is one Church of Scientology Class 5 organization here in Colorado. It is in Denver. Uh, they are downtown right next to the baseball field, and that's the situation here. I don't know if there are even any missions left. There used to be one down in Pueblo, I believe. I don't know if it's still running or not. I don't think it is. Uh, I think that's the only Scientology in Colorado is the is the org here in Denver, and they're tiny. They're 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 an ideal org, so it's not a tiny little podunk building. It's a it's a very nice building, but it's empty all the time. You know, as as is usual for Scientology churches these days. 
All right. Uh, let's see what we got here. My thing goes skipping down to the bottom and all of that all the time, so I got to scroll back up. One of these days, I might come up with a better system for this, but uh, let's see if we can power through some more questions here. Leslie Bishop, here's an interesting question. Uh, do you remember what your first thought was regarding the bill in your contract? Were you quick to rationalize it? I'm thinking that goes back to your point about logic reasoning. Yeah. Um, I was, my very, if you ask my very first thoughts about it, is it scared the hell out of me. When I was a Scientologist and I was a teenager, I was being recruited for the Sea Org quite heavily. And I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I, it's, it terrified me. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. What are you guys, crazy? Go off and live on a Sea Org base and wear these uniforms and have to, yes sir, no sir? What the hell are you talking about? I'm not doing that. So I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, it was years in development and about four different recruit, what they call recruit cycles, where, where they sat me down and tried to, you know, hardcore go in on me to sign a contract. And I... Um, I held a job in Santa Barbara that had so much training and responsibility connected with it that Sea Org that I tended to scare off Sea Org recruiters because replacing me so that I could go join the Sea Org, it was easier to just go get somebody else. Because I was a trained supervisor, I was a key to life supervisor, I was a pro TR supervisor, I was trained in the purification rundown. So I knew how to do a lot of technical stuff. And I was the only guy in Santa Barbara at the org who did. Or I was one of maybe, you know, two or three people who knew how to do these things. And so if you were going to pluck me to go join the Sea Org, you'd have to replace me, which means somebody else had to be able to do all that work. So I was a little bit, you know, I was recruited, but not really because they could never replace me. And, you know, so that was kind of a problem. But as far as my own thinking, you know, to your question, Leslie, I was intimidated and, and terrified of the billionaire contract. And I thought that was, you know, ludicrous to commit yourself to something like that to begin with. And it was over the years, right, uh, that I became more and more frustrated with the state of Scientology and the lack of expansion. And it became a thing where I was like, you know, you know, I have to do this. Ugh, I don't want to. I really don't want to move down to Los Angeles. I really don't want to have to live on that base. But I have to. Because it's the responsible thing to do. You know? It was kind of like that. And that was kind of how I sold myself on it. It was, uh, it's the responsible thing to do. And I was thinking with Hubbard's ideas of responsibility, this very expansive, you know, fully embracive, I'm, I'm holding the world in my arms kind of responsibility. This is a very delusional level of responsibility that I'm being responsible by taking on the burden of the entire world on my shoulders. You know, this was kind of the attitude. And it was, you know, obviously egotistical as hell, but it was wrapped up in this thinking of, well, I really don't want to do this, but I have to do this because how can I live with myself if I don't? You know, and I kind of fell for that line of reasoning and talked myself into it that way. And when I did join the Sea Org, it was on my 
sort of volunteerism. I kind of went in and said, I need to do this and I need you guys to replace me so I can go do this. And it, it still took six months for them to come around and, and finally get down and replace me. Um, but then, then I arrived in 1995 down to Los Angeles. So that's kind of how it went um, as far as my reasoning of it goes. Uh, very unusual, by the way. Most people are not talking themselves into going into the Sea Org, uh, as I learned uh, over the years. And once I went out and did Sea Org recruitment, you know, most people were like, get away from me. And you'd have to sit them down and scare the shit out of them uh, through this whole recruitment process. And then, uh, and then lean heavily on that responsibility thing and get them to, you know, kind of strong arm them into joining is kind of how it went. Okay. Um, huh. Vernon asks, do a lot of people take their lives in the Sea Org? No. No. Uh, I, I, no. I can't think of... I mean, in the time I was in... On the base I was on, I'm not aware of any of any suicidal Sea uh, Org members who stayed and did it. I that we we got rid of them. If some if somebody started feeling you know suicidal ideation as a Sea Org member, they were they were offloaded almost immediately. That was not something we wanted to keep around. Uh, not for their sake, for ours, right? For the Sea Org's sake, it was a it was an image and PR issue more much more than we cared about the person. It was not about caring about the person, ever. Um, yeah, that's... Okay. Um, I did not say something about a dating app. You did not miss anything on that. Um, Xion asks, did you ever see a person follow Scientology or what you told them to the degree that it scared you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I understand your question. Um, not that it scared me. No, I've never been scared of any of my followers or, or the dedication anybody who's in this space has shown towards Scientology. I have been disturbed, though, by... Um, certain elements of either the entertainment value of this or the sort of attitude of let's go commit violence against Scientologists because they're so bad. Those are the two things that have disturbed me in the following of Scientology over the years. Uh, it's few and far between. It's I can count on one hand how many people have, have disturbed me in this way. This is not a, a very broad thing, but since you ask, you know, sure. Um, I am always, this is why you've seen me go out of my way periodically to say, look, violence is not okay. Don't do it, right? Do not go antagonize these people. Do not go give them a hard time. Do not think you're doing anybody a favor by going and beating up a Scientologist or, you know, let's have punch a Scientologist day. No, 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 no. don't do that. Um, that is never, ever going to help anything. Uh, it's only going to get you in trouble, and it's only going to make the church's position stronger in the public space, space uh, against these, you know, violent uh, protesters. We don't want that. Never did. 
So, so that's why I have to go out of my way to say that periodically is because some people start getting that idea and I'm not down with that. Right. And that disturbs me when people get that way. I I don't want people getting that way because of anything I say. The fight is, is a lot. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. And that's never going to help or work anyway. All you're going to do is create martyrs and stuff like that. The other end of it, of course, that entertainment value, that popcorn value, you know, oh, oh, I can't wait to watch this now, right? And it's a little bit like, it's a little ghoulish sometimes, right? It's a little bit like, really? Like, this is really entertaining to you? This is this trauma porn, this like, oh, these people are suffering and you can't get enough of that? That that bothers me a little bit, right? Um, and there's no finger pointing here, right? I don't believe I have an audience of that. I think you guys are here for the education and for, and for understanding. And that's, that's what I'm all about, is let's understand this situation. Let's understand these people so that we can help them. We can help them out. We can help people from falling into it in the first place. You know, that's a, that's a worthy cause. And it's a real kind of, you know, little bit of a, of, a, of a fine line sometimes between where, do, where are we crossing the line into trauma porn versus trying to educate ourselves on something that is truly pretty horrible. And, you know, it's the worst of behaviors in, in human beings. When you get into culty stuff or coercive stuff, you're dealing with the very worst of mankind. And I have to remind myself about that all the time because I can get a very narrow view of people because of the work that I do. And I have. I've fallen into this trap many times where I start thinking everybody sucks. And then the world is sucks and everything's going over a cliff. And I have to remind myself, I pull myself back from that all the time because I'm immersed in this stuff. So I would encourage people to, you know, yeah, be interested, be helpful, volunteer, give, you know, give resources, give help, give support, but don't fall into it so hard that you think this is all there is to life because it's not. And, and, it's, and it shouldn't be looked at that way. Okay, so there's, uh, yeah, good question. All right, um, let's see here. Huh. Yeah, uh, Gnome Sane asks a great question. Did the RPF have a bosun? If so, did they get the prison guard mentality towards RPF members? Yes and yes. Um, the Sea Org member who was in charge of the RPF was the RPF IC, the RPF in charge. Pretty obvious title. That was not somebody who was on the RPF. That was the Sea Org member who was whose job it was to run the RPF, to oversee it, administer it, make sure it ran according to the flag orders on how it's supposed to run. And that was a full-time job. And Hubbard compares that job to a military drill sergeant, says that's the best kind of person you want for that job, is you want somebody who's tough and ruthless and will just pound people through the program. So that's kind of the attitude that came out of the RPFIC's office. Um, it was not one of sympathy or compassion. It was one of ruthless dictatorship. And the uh, RPFICs generally were complete dicks. Um, then there is the bosun. And the bosun is the RPF member who is overall in charge of the RPF from inside. There's a whole little command structure that is uh, the organizational structure to the RPF. And the bosun's the guy in charge. And this is somebody who was... Um, chosen by the uh, RPFIC to hold that job. 
So they had a certain degree of trust put on them. And generally, they were also ruthless assholes. Uh, their their view as a as a bosun was get people through the program. You don't coddle them. You don't sympathize with them. You are not compassionate with them. You are tough and dedicated and ruthless, and that's how you get through that program. So um, you know. So when I broke my finger, for example, one day, and I did, I broke it right at the tip, and it was one of the most painful things I've ever experienced in my life. I was not rushed to the hospital. I was told to man up and deal with it. And I spent that night sleeping in my cot, uh, almost, I mean, I was crying. It was so painful. Uh, I'd never broken a bone before. So I had no no earlier knowledge of what this felt like. And all I knew was my finger felt like it was going to fall off. I couldn't believe how much it hurt. And he just told me to man up, shut up. You know, he was like, pain exists in your head. That's the only place pain exists. So get over it right? It's all in your head. Well, from a certain point of view, that's true. Pain does exist in your head. <laughs> but when you got a broken bone, you got a broken bone, asshole, right? You need to go down and get some medical attention. And ironically, it was the deputy RPFIC the next day who was a woman who was sort of uh, the person who was kind of overseeing the technical aspects of the RPF, the auditing and all that. And she was like, what? Your finger's, what the hell? Your finger's broken. What the hell are you doing here? Get your ass to the hospital. And he was like, oh, no, sir. I don't think he needs to go. And she's like, shut up. He's going to the hospital. Like, I had to have an advocate, you know, because the bosun and the RPF I see were such cocks that they were not at all interested in any medical attention for me. You know, so that was my own personal experience of that. And, of course, we observed that with many, many, many other RPFers over the years, right? People lost eyes, broke arms, broke limbs, you know, suicidal ideation, all kinds of things come up on the RPF. And uh, and these guys were just ruthless bastards about it. You know, it was not a place. It was a prison, and it ran on a prison mentality. And prisons are not good places, you know, the way we have set up our, our structured, our prison system is inhumane. It is disgusting how we treat people in prisons. And America specifically, you know, if I'm going to soapbox on this for a second, America specifically has a very, very serious problem with over-incarceration of our citizens. There's more people in prison here than there is in China. And that's saying something. And that's not a good thing to be saying. So that whole mentality very much existed within the RPF. And it was an unregulated activity. We were, it was Lord of the Flies. I mean, it was bad. So, yeah, good question. Okay. Um, okay, Math Knights. Uh, when you said on some video that someone had to clean something with a toothbrush, was it a metaphor or literally? No, I meant that literally. Uh, there was all kinds of toothbrush cleaning going on in the Sea Org. Absolutely. That's not a metaphor. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Joe asked, do Scientologists get punished in the same way if they do wrong things when drunk? Yes. Yes, they do. In fact, they'll get even more harsher uh, sentencing or, or judgment because of the fact that they let themselves get drunk and get out of control and do bad things. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Joy, Anna, Chris, what does a wedding look like between two Sea Org members? It is seen as a formality or a celebration. 
It depends a little bit on the members, but mostly it's a little bit of both, right? It is a it is a legal formality. It is also a bit of a celebration. It's usually done after post late at night, right? There was a lot of 11 o'clock and midnight weddings in the Sea Org. Um, there are weekend weddings, right? I went to Vegas with my wife uh, when I was in the Sea Org, uh, my first wife, right? And uh, we had a weekend off to go to Vegas and, and have a time and come back. So it's, it's, it's generally considered a celebratory activity. It's not a utilitarian, you know, just a functional kind of thing. People fall in love and they, you know, want to consummate their marriage and all that. And, you know, it's all good time. So, you know, generally it's a little bit of a party, but it's not any kind of bash or any kind of big thing. It's generally treated as a, okay, that's nice. Let's move on, you know, kind of thing. Um... Vernon, do you think David Miscavige was a normal kid before entering Scientology? No, I don't think David Miscavige was ever a normal kid. And uh, Ron Miscavige's book kind of lays out the history of that. All right. Um, Oh, gosh. Probably have to do a whole video on that one. Um, Let me see if I can... I don't think I'm going to get to all these questions. I'm going too long on some of these. There was another... Super chat I wanted to, I just heard. So let me um let me back up here. <laughs> All right, let's see here. I think there was another one I missed, so I want to make sure I don't miss that. Oh, Anthony asked another one. Anthony, do you think Disney vaguely borders on a cult to some degree? Walt Disney himself seems to have been a bit of an egomaniac. <laughs> No, I don't think Disney is a cult. Um, I think that we see cult-like behavior out of almost any group. Honestly, right? This is a spectrum activity. Let's remember that. Um, You have extremism out on the ends, and you can have cult-like stuff happening even in the middle or out, you know, in the middle center or whatever. So, you know, can you see cult-like activity in Disney? Sure, group think. That's a thing. Absolutely. Uh, Groups get together. Groups of people get together. They start acting a little weird. That can be culty. Does that make Walt Disney a a cult leader or Bob Iger a cult leader or something? No, of course not. You know, not at all. It's just group activity. And this is where sociology and knowledge of that really comes into play in looking at cultic activity versus just regular group activity. There's, There's a point where it's group, 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 regular group, regular group. Suddenly, wait a minute something's not quite right here keep going down the spectrum oh wait a minute now we're over into this high control authoritarian kind of stuff right so it's a graduated sort of scale that's how i model it in my head it's not you know there's not often often in real life and in real groups there are not clear delineations. It's not a black and white binary kind of thing. It makes it hard, I know. I, I wish it was easier to, to think with that way. It would be a lot easier if we were more binary creatures, but we're really not, and, uh, and reality doesn't really work that way. So, all right, uh, let's see what we got here. Keep going. Oh, my God, we're an hour and 10 in. How is this keep going? Okay, I'm going to have to wrap up here in a second. You guys, um, da, 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 da. 
Vernon asks, if a woman in the Sea Org is over three months pregnant, would she still be ordered to get an abortion? Yes, she would. And if it could be made to happen, then they would make it happen. Yeah. Um, Nerman asks, fair game activities are very destructive and unacceptable in Clearwater. Why is that 501c3 tax exempt? Um, because most fair game activities legally fall under the First Amendment, to be honest. That's why. Um, you know, as long as you're not trespassing or breaking the law in an overt way, um, then it's all fair game, right? Uh, now, once you start violating the law and getting over into stalking and harassment, then it's not legal anymore and it's not covered under uh, 501c3 exemption or anything like that. But that's where you have to bring in the courts and the police and the systems and these are slow and these are not, they are stacked in the church's favor. Um, religious practice being what it is, there's, they're given an awful lot of latitude. That doesn't mean stalking and harassment's okay. But bringing the case, bringing charges, you know, getting involved in that whole framework is difficult to say the least, right? So again, it, it should be a pretty clear case of common sense. But common sense is not in high demand when it comes to fair gaming and cultic activities. And when you start applying the letter of the law to these activities, you find that there's an awful lot of latitude given to people in this country under the First Amendment, both for freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And, um, and this is where protesters come in. This is where, you know, following people around comes in. This is where sitting outside somebody's house for hours on end, you can't do anything about that. Good luck trying. You know, you just can't. And that sucks. It sucks. But it's, it, you know, it is what it is. Uh, so, yeah, you got to catch them really breaking the law and get evidence of it. And then you can really move forward and do something. And that, it just, it sucks so much of your time and energy uh, doing that kind of thing, you know. It doesn't make it any of this right. Absolutely not. All of it is a moral activity. All of it is disgusting. But, but illegal, you know, that's where ugh, you got to push. Okay, let's do two more and then we will wrap up here. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Uh, oh, I don't know if that's an actual Orwell quote or not. Um, let's see. Okay, Leslie Martin asks, what are your thoughts on Claire Headley being a co an expert witness on Scientology? According to Mark Headley, who attended Delphi, the school is not accredited with by the state. Um, okay, my thoughts on Claire Headley being an expert witness are two fucking thumbs up. Absolutely go, girl, go, right? I want that, and I want to see Scientology um, being talked about from the witness stand, right, by an expert, and she is absolutely uh, somebody who can do that, and I am sure she will do it competently. Um, I have high hopes on that one, so, um, so I'm very, very much in support of that. I want these victims to get their justice. And I personally am convinced that Danny Masterson is guilty 
that's my own personal opinion uh, based on, you know, everything I know about Scientology and Danny Masterson. So um, the fact that we're going to have an expert witness on this, good, right? Absolutely. As far as Delphi's accreditation goes, I, I don't know. Uh, that's something I'd have to look into because it's there's there's accreditation in California. There's accreditation in Oregon. There's two different places. There's also accreditation in Florida. So which one are we talking about? All of them? Uh, none of them? What? Which one? So I don't I don't know, and I haven't looked into it enough to know whether they're accredited or not. Uh, but they're certainly operational, and they're certainly taking taking money from people, and they're certainly educating kids. That's the truth. Uh, okay. And then let's keep going. Um, Castle. Okay. <laughs> Boson, interesting wordle word. That's right. Okay. Um, Good. Okay. And with that, I think we will go ahead and wrap up. Yes. Okay. Let's go ahead and do that. Um, thanks for coming around, guys. Thanks for watching. I very much appreciate your viewership and your support. And uh, with that, um, we won the show. I will see you guys tomorrow, probably live. And if not, uh, then you'll get a recording from me. But either way, uh, watch the show for tomorrow. All right. And with that, Bye-bye.